All right, welcome to another podcast episode of White Collar Crimes. I'm your host, Ryan Horn. This is the podcast where we show you the only color that truly matters in the criminal justice system is green. Jack Abramoff, that name might, for some of you listeners, kind of ring a bell a little bit. It was a name that was in the news, you know, just a few years ago, not too awfully long ago. And Mr. Abramoff, he was, uh, like I said, he was born into a wealthy Jewish family, grew up pretty well-to-do. In fact, his father, Franklin, was the president of the Diners Club credit card. I never had one of those, probably couldn't afford one. I think those were more for more elite types and and whatnot. Uh, I think my first credit card, if I remember right, was a MasterCard. I was pretty young in college at the time, but anyway, he... uh, certainly grew up with money. He uh, didn't want for anything as far as anything is ever indicated from his background. And he, in fact, he attended Beverly Hills High School, you know, grew up the Beverly Hills 90210 lifestyle, as some of you my age and a little older might remember that show, big hit in the early 90s. But he grew up and actually lived that life. And they said in football, he, in high school, he actually excelled at football and weightlifting and a lot of other sports, very athletic. And he would go on to graduate college, and he also graduated law school at Georgetown in 1986. And after this, he ran and won election as the chairman of the College Republican National Committee. So he gets his first little dibs and involved in politics here, his first little experience at getting involved in politics, and, you know, he was successful right out of the gate, really. And during this time, he also continued to be be heavily involved in Republican Party politics in the 1980s. You know, this is the Reagan era. You know, President Ronald Reagan, he dominated, you know, politics in the 1980s. And, you know, I'm sure he was heavily involved in a lot of this stuff, a lot of the campaigns and things of that sort. Um, But he wasn't really done with that. And he spent some time in Hollywood. And he actually helped write and produce the 1989 film Red Scorpion, starring Dolph Lundgren, which I, you know, I have not seen that movie, but it actually ended up becoming kind of a little series, had a couple spinoffs and and whatnot. And speaking of Lundgren, or Lundgren, I think he had some nice things to say about the sacrifice that our veterans paid here, at, you know, not long ago where it's Memorial Day and. He points out that, you know, they gave the ultimate price for our freedoms and kind of makes our problems seem really small in comparison. Really, really nice quote, I thought. In fact, I shared that on my Facebook page. He uh, should be commended for a nice statement. But it was a movie series that starred him, action, you know, an action series, or it became a series, but it was an action movie he co-wrote and produced in 1989. Now, this film was shot in West South Africa, which was kind of controversial. They filmed here at this time because this was uh, due to apartheid, and that was uh, very much in the news big time. If any of you remember the late 80s, it certainly dominated the news at this time you know, throughout the 1980s and before, and it would stay in the news until the 90s when it was done away with there. But at this time, South Africa, uh, he did some time there where, you know, making this movie and whatnot, and he got involved with a rabbi, David Lappin, who would eventually become his spiritual advisor. So after Hollywood, this is the 80s, the 90s come around, and he decides to branch off yet into another 
adventure, and this involves the lobbying business, or industry, I should say. It's a pretty big industry. And in the 1990s, he got involved in lobbying in Seattle. So, I mean, he's grown up in basically Beverly Hills, law school in Washington, D.C., Hollywood, South Africa, now back over to Seattle. You know, well-traveled guy. And during that time, he uh, also began representing Native American tribes with gambling interests. Because in the 1990s, that's also something that, if you recall, kind of started popping up. Uh, Native American casinos were popping up all over. Of course, you know, these types of of casinos were, you know, just kind of coming onto the scene, really, and becoming popular, as gambling was really all together at this time. A lot of states and jurisdictions, you know, laxed their restrictions on them. I can remember, I think, around this time, maybe a little after that, when uh, south of me here in Metropolis, Illinois, famous for the Superman festival and whatnot, it, you know, opened up a riverboat where it became, you know, legal to gamble on the riverboat there. It might have been in the 1990s, if I recall correctly, but, you know, it started to become really popular and everybody wanted to bring, you know, get in on it and get their piece of the pie, so to speak. And, you know, Mr. Abramoff certainly took advantage of this situation. And again, he got involved in, you know, lobbying and representing various tribes on their interest in getting these gaming establishments, you know, established because it's big business. You know, gambling did not get hit hard. I heard this on a radio report a few months back. A study showed that during this, you know, pandemic from 2020 to 2021, when a lot of the country was locked down and a lot of restrictions and things like that, the gambling industry was not hurt, you know, especially now that you can do a lot of it online. It, uh, it still thrived despite the hard-hit economic repercussions we got from this and everything that happened. It, it, you know, it didn't take a hit like a lot of other industries did. And he was paid $6.7 million by the uh, Commonwealth of Northern Marina, Northern Marina Islands, from 1995 to 2001. So that's over a million dollars a year. And this was to promote a made-in-the-USA label, which oddly... Uh, was not, nor subject to U.S. labor laws. Nonetheless, he made pretty good money to lobby and report or promote this. And he also became involved in a scam when it was later revealed that he bribed Roger Stilwell, a high-ranking employee of the Department of the Interior. And during this time, he would become heavily involved with the D.C. lobbying firm Greenberg Trowing. And during this time, his lobbying efforts certainly ramped up and he began to get involved in many ventures. One of them was uh, the school program, Channel One News. And right now, I know if you're a Gen Xer like myself, this is immediately going to set off uh, probably a lot of memories. A lot of things will come back on this. That was something we saw in my school right before lunch. I think we went to lunch pretty early last couple years, my junior, senior year. And I remember about 11:20-ish or so, we got Channel one news which was an update on what was going on in the world you know because it's kind of cool catchy channel one because you know on tv there is there is no channel one you know i remember our tv had channel two and on up but there yeah there was no channel one so that was what was kind of cool about their name and their brand on that but uh you know it kind of gave you a roundabout of what was going on in the world i can't remember maybe a little five ten minute little program on that and then you know we broke for lunch but it was something really cool at the time and looking back on it in fact 
I had my 30-year high school reunion last year, and we actually were laughing about that. It was one of the things we talked about that was going on at the time and how much the world has changed in the last 30 years. But nonetheless, he got that going, and it became pretty popular in a lot of schools. And he also began to get tied later on to President George W. Bush. And this is when he was uh, the Governor Bush in post-governor days prior to his presidency. In fact, he was actually part of the transition team for the president to be a part in the transition team for the Department of the Interior. You know, again, we've just established he already had ties there to Mr. Stilwell. In fact, bribed him, which was later revealed. So he was part of getting this transition done and accomplished. But he fell into scandal in about 2004, and that's when the Senate Indian Affairs Committee began to investigate his lobbying efforts for tribes and casinos. Again, you know, it's something that popped up, and, you know, he certainly wanted to cash in on the popularity of that at the time, so he does, and he makes a lot of money off of it, and maybe not always the best way that he should have approached it, maybe not the best angle on it, and he uh, begins to get in the radar of the United States Senate, and they open up an investigation, So by August of 2005, he is indicted, along with a man named Adam Keaton, uh, for using a fake wire transfer to convince a lender they had made a $23 million down payment on a $60 million loan. That's a lot of money, you know, especially then. I mean, the way things are going now, you know, with our inflation and gas prices and food and everything, who knows, $60 million may not even be that much money a whole lot longer, but, you know, it certainly is, you know, and certainly at that point, you're talking nearly, you know, 20 years ago, you're talking, well, you know, 17 years ago, it certainly was a lot of money, and they were caught up in this scam, and they finally do draw some attention from law enforcement. So he pleads guilty on January 4th, 2006, and he received 70 months in federal prison. Now, several friends, rabbis, and they said even a pro hockey referee, they'd known because he had his hand, you know, his finger in every pie, as that saying goes, and I guess he had connections even in sports, but they lobbied, you know, oddly, he was also a lobbyist, but they lobbied and petitioned the judge for some leniency and hoping to maybe get him to catch a break at his sentencing. And, uh... He was also found to have run some scams in Guam, even conspiring to build Native American casinos out of an estimated $83 million. So once they, you know, kind of uncover things, a lot of things began to surface and they weren't good. The guy was a, you know, habitual con artist and, you know, was victimizing the very people he was supposed to be lobbying and helping. So in a separate trial in 2008... He was found guilty of trading expensive gifts, trips, you know, etc., for political favors. Now, you know, that's something that's really difficult. That's a really slippery slope for law enforcement and for prosecutors because, you know, lobbying is not illegal. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, people get gifts that are in these high positions and in, in these offices. And although it may not be directly implied or directly stated that they have to return this favor for it, I'm sure it's certainly implied. And, you know, not everybody who gets a gift is, you know, 
supposed to give something in return, although we know, you know, that's politics. It is trading favors. You know, anyone that thinks they're going to go into politics and not ever have to do favors, you're crazy. You know, I know from my time as just a small town alderman and, you know, a couple years I was a small town mayor. It doesn't happen. You have to do favors even at the smallest level like that because people help get you elected and, you know, they expect things in return. And, you know, sometimes they do things for you and, you know, they, they still will expect things in return. And, you know, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. There was an older former mayor when I was running there in our town that told me at the time, he said, you know, people are going to want you to do things for them. And sometimes you just can't, you know, it's not legal or it's not ethical. And, you know, you have to just kind of politely refuse. But, you know, people nonetheless still, you know, want their favors and still expect them. And that, that's just part of the business. So it's very difficult. You know, I'd be curious to look into it a little further, how law enforcement and how the prosecution in that case was actually able to prove intent on his behalf that, you know, he literally traded these favors for, you know, some type of, you know, political favor in, in return. You know, again, it happens all the time, but it's, uh, it is very difficult to prove. So he was sentenced to four years in prison. And it was said, or it was to run concurrently with his previous sentence, you know, which means run at the same time. So he didn't have to finish one sentence and serve the other. You know, that's something that, you know, can be kind of confusing to someone that, you know, if you don't know a whole lot about the justice system, if somebody's sentence gets two different sentences for cut, you know, two different crimes and they say they run concurrently, that means they run at the same time. Say they get four years for one and six for the other. Well, when the four years runs out, that one sentence is over, and then they run, you know, the other two, and that's it. Now, if they get consecutive sentences, that means in that case they would serve four years, and then when that's done, then they would do the six years on top of that. So, you know, instead of just doing, you know, four years or whatnot, uh, they end up doing ten or six in that case, like we said earlier, if it runs uh, concurrently. So he gets it to run concurrently with his previous sentence. And at least 24 others connected to him were convicted and, you know, sentenced at various levels. And he served about four years total. And while he was in prison, it was said to he have he was said to have worked for the prison clerk or the prison chaplain as a clerk for about 12 cents an hour. You know, long, long way down from when, you know, he was getting millions of dollars as a lobbyist and, you know, making movies and even growing up, you know, as the son of the diner's card president, CEO, you know, always growing up around wealth and privilege and, you know, that kind of thing. And suddenly now he'd been through greed reduced to making 12 cents an hour. You know, that's unfortunately what greed can do. And it did for him in his case. And afterwards he was released to a halfway house. That happens a lot when somebody's sentence is over. A lot of times you know, six months, even to a year out, they might let them go to what's known as a halfway house where they can kind of slowly ease their way back into society, stay there, and then maybe work a job during the day or night and not have to just go cold turkey out in the world because, let's face it, it's hard. Maybe not for one like him that comes from a money background that he does, but for a lot of fenders that don't have money and they come from poor families and don't have any jobs, you know, job prospects or anything like that, when they get out, it can be quite difficult. So this helps the transition process a little bit easier before they're just, you know, as I said, just cold turkey kicked out onto the streets from jail or prison. So he supposedly worked in a kosher pizzeria for 40 hours a week or so, you know, 
for seven, ten bucks an hour, something at the time, far less than, again, he was accustomed to making, but nonetheless, he was, uh, you know, should have been a humiliating and humbling experience for him, but it really wasn't, because guess what? He returned as a lobbyist for a while, but in 2020, got caught up in a cryptocurrency scam, and you know, that's something that just kind of come on to the scene big time in the last few years. Um, if any of you have invested in it, you know it can be very much like a roller coaster. One minute you make enough where you can be a millionaire and two or three days later you could go broke with it. You really got to, you really have to be careful, you know, with what you invest in it and, you know, what you can make off of it and really got to know when to cash out and when not to. But it's becoming very popular. A lot of places now are actually, you know, allowing payment by cryptocurrency so it's certainly come onto the scene and become really popular you know personally i wish i would have invested when the bitcoin boom first came out you know some years back like that i certainly probably could have gotten you know quite wealthy especially when it went up to about sixty thousand dollars a pop here recently now you know last time i checked it's down you know quite a bit below that but that's how you know investments work in general and it was no different with cryptocurrency but he was caught up in a cryptocurrency scam in San Francisco and recently pled guilty to some more federal fraud charges. And at the time of this broadcast, it is my understanding he is still awaiting sentencing. We'll wait and see what happens on that, but he very well could end up right back into prison. And who knows, when he gets out, he might find yet another scam to get into. You know, we talk about that on this program all the time, that how just like common street criminals tend to reoffend after release from custody, it's not a lot different with white-collar criminals. They tend to continue to prey on victims when they get out as well. You know, uh, you know Kevin Trudeau, the late-night, you know, pitchman on infomercials. We mentioned him about a month ago, and, you know, same thing with him. He'd been in and out of prison on various frauds, but it's not stopped him from offending in these cases. And unfortunately... So many of them do over and over again. Now, we don't know how long he'll get, how much time he'll get out of this. You know, it's hard to say. I don't think we've had a whole lot of cryptocurrency scams yet because it's a fairly new thing that's come onto the scene, but we'll, we'll see how it ends up playing out. And it's a case we may end up doing a follow-up on somewhat here uh, coming up in the near future. And, uh, you know, like I said, we got some case, cases coming up we'll discuss about some, you know, sports white-collar crimes that's happened, uh, some health care fraud, again, a big one that we've had recently, and we're going to be, you know, continuing to keep a, a focus on that, and, you know, we'll just try to get the word out, because so few of these cases get the coverage that the, you know, street crime gets, and we want to educate the public and expose a lot of these types of crimes and hope they get the coverage that, you know, they need to get, and like we said, we ask, you know, you as the listeners to watch out for each other, your friends and your family, especially the elderly, that's who oftentimes are the groups that get targeted the most in these white-collar crimes. So keep an eye out for each other, you know, know what's out there and look out for each other because there are always scam artists just waiting around the corner to take advantage of you or me or anybody that they can get a hold of. So we thank you for tuning in. Hope you'll join us next Tuesday when we launch the next episode. And, uh, you know, as always, follow us on our Facebook page, White Collar Crimes. You can uh, also uh, check out my website, ryan-horn.com. If you're in need of any voiceover service, certainly I can help you out with that. And you can also um, check us out on our Anchor FM page. 
You can donate if you like. There is a section where you can do that. We certainly appreciate any donations to keep us going. We most importantly appreciate you just tuning in every week and showing your support. And we hope you will continue to do that. And as I always say too, go to your local pet shelter. Check out your pet shelter and adopt your new best friend. You know, as my wife likes to say, adopt, don't shop. You know, they're... The puppy mills and the pet stores are overrun, but your new best friend is waiting for you at the shelter. I know our three are all from there, and we wouldn't have it any other way. We hope you can continue to do that as well. So, again, we thank you for tuning in. Hope to see you on the next time. God bless and take care, everybody.